0: This year the topic of de-escalation training, preventative measures, and institutional reconstruction are highly relevant in the world of law enforcement. Today we're joined by John Bostein. John is president of Command Presence Training. He has committed the last 26 years to law enforcement, 24 of which have been a trainer. He has trained more than 25,000 law enforcement professionals at the state, local, federal, and international level, and is a frequent speaker at national law enforcement conferences. I am Patrick Yeoes, National President of Fraternal Order Police. This is the Blue View. John, welcome, and thanks for joining us today on the the Blue View podcast. Uh, Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And uh, uh, I love the FOP. I had a chance to present at the uh, National FOP Conference a couple of years ago in Indianapolis. So um, it's really, truly an honor uh, to be uh, on your podcast today and and talking about the challenges. So my name is John Bostain. I'm the owner of Command Presence Training. We're headquartered down in Brunswick, Georgia. And um, I started my law enforcement career in a place called Hampton, Virginia, and enjoyed a really good career there. I spent time in uniform patrol, narcotics, Um, I was a police academy instructor, which has really kind of started my juices about being an instructor, Um, uh, SWAT team member, and a detective and a patrol supervisor before I left in 2001. And I joined the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, also known as Fletsi in Glencoe, Georgia. So I was a trainer at Fletsi for 13 years, most of my time, I was the senior instructor for use of force training. I also worked in the Rural Policing Institute and some other divisions as well. Uh, started off teaching defensive tactics. So uh, in 2014, I decided 25 total years of government service was enough and uh, decided to go out and venture on my own and, and still serve the law enforcement community, uh, only this time as a full-time law enforcement trainer uh, with my own company. So that's just a kind of the, the uh, thumbnail uh, that should be enough to get us started
0: absolutely and thank you for your years of service in law enforcement. And John let's just dive right into it. You know last year 2022 was one of the most dangerous years for law enforcement. There were um 331 police officers were shot in the line of duty. It's a uh, data that the fraternal order Police has been tracking for about 5 years, 5 6 years now. And uh when you compare it to to 2019 when things really uh, really, kind of turn for law enforcement profession, COVID, and, and all of the unrest. That's a that's a 13% increase from 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 that year. Um, you know, the Manhattan Institute uh, says that anti-police rhetoric is a, is one of the the key factors, uh, one of the leading factors in assaults on law enforcement officers. Uh, very challenging times that we're in. In your perspective, what? Uh, you know, what do you see as our biggest challenges in, in trying to turn the tide on public perception and attacks and lack of respect for, for our law enforcement officers? Yes,
1: yeah, so it's a great question. And so I, I have to agree that at least when I travel to the United States and I'm talking to people, um, you know, as a general rule, most of the officers that are in class, they're they're still positive about the job. But you can sense this underlying frustration. I think the Manhattan Institute is 100 percent correct uh, where that anti-law enforcement sentiment might be driving uh, some of the challenges, and quite honestly, um, it seems to me in society that there's just a lack of respect for law enforcement, or more importantly, maybe just the law in general. And not to get hyper political, but we are seeing um, a lot of legislation across the United States that wants to minimize consequences for criminal behavior. I, I, there is no other way to say that. Um, so there are places where um, you know you get arrested for something, and we we you know I think. It's It used to be bad, but it is. We used to joke that people were out uh, before the paper was finished. Now it's a reality. And so I think some of this has to do with legislation. Uh, I honestly don't understand what the legislatures are thinking sometimes, um, what the upside of the. And I don't um, I don't say necessarily soft on crime. It really tends to be uh, no consequence uh, legislation for criminal behavior, so this certainly has had an impact, and the other thing about um, officers being murdered in the line of duty and officers being shot in the line of duty is it 's really important to remember, and I talk about this in a lot of our classes I think it 's really important to remember this is not anecdotal this is not just a gut feeling that we have the data bears it out. Um, I used to be a blow one hundred instructor I was one of the original uh, blow one hundred instructors and for 20-plus years, the leading cause of law enforcement line of duty deaths was vehicle-related incidents. Um, that's simply not true anymore. Uh, I'd have to double-check the data, but I think it's four of the last five years, gunfire is leading the way. So we need to re- recognize it for the actual threat that it is. Um, and so I, I think that number one we have to recognize that number two when we talk about what can we do about it it's time to engage the community and quite honestly engage the right people and here's what I mean by that. Um, we tend to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to pacify a very small group of vocal anti-law enforcement people. And the truth of the matter is, uh, if you look at the research, people still in general have a high regard for law enforcement. Most studies that you see out there still rank them right behind um, uh, the military when it comes to uh, the profession. Now, anybody that's listening, I know it doesn't feel like that right now because the reality is, is the small percentage of people get all the noise or all the news and the attention and they make the most noise. Um, I heard a great term the other day though. Um, I was talking to somebody and they used the term slacktivist <laughs> instead of activist, slacktivist. And what that, he meant by that is, Um, You have some hardcore activists out there who just really hate the police, but then there seems to be a huge chunk of slacktivists, and what they mean is they're not really committed to the anti-police cause. They'll show up uh, because they want to be part of something, um, but they really aren't. Uh, hardcore anti-law enforcement people. So I think when I talk about engaging people, those are the people we gotta we've got to try and figure out how to t- engage and talk with and see where their perspective comes from. Um, now, again, we spend it seems like we spend the most amount of time trying to get people who are just never going to believe any of the data. Um, we know the data, right, when it comes to use of force. Uh, there's no question about it that officers use force, uh, specifically deadly force, and a statistically insignificant number of contacts with the public. It's very, very rare, but that's not the perception. But what we need to do is engage the community, whether it's citizens' police academies or forums, or quite honestly, my preference is Arm the frontline officer with more information about the realities of use of force, and so they can have that conversation right on the corner as they're talking to people. Um, I was, I heard, uh, I know you've had Jason Lehman on before. Uh, I think Jason Lehman's spot on that when we clear a call, instead of just jumping in our car going ten eight. Obviously there's times we have to do that, but Hey, if we've got 10, 15 minutes, don't get back in your car, go talk to people in the neighborhood, help them understand the realities for, for about use of force, help them understand the realities about why some uh, minorities may perc- we may perceive that more of them are getting stopped than others. Uh, well, a lot of times, that has to do with the calls for service and the people in that community calling for it. So, I think that one of the things we can do is educate our frontline officers to have more intelligent conversations about the realities of policing. Uh, and then Malcolm Gladwell he calls it the tipping point. Um, I think that we you know we may have forty percent of the fifty percent of the country that already strongly supports the police, maybe even more. How about we go, you know, try to attract those other 30, 40% to our side by just being educated about the realities of use of force and uh, law enforcement in general.
0: You covered a lot of ground there. There's yeah, quite sorry, a few things I, I'd like I to oh, know. No, it's good. It's a good discussion. <laughs> and it's spot on, everything you said. I'd I just like to, to you know, kind of back up a little bit and talk about some of those things. Yeah. You, know, you talk about the interaction with the public on, on calls. Look, I, every law enforcement officer, I think that the, the you know, morale is low now for law yep. enforcement because we don't feel appreciated. Yep. Uh, and and you know, we, what we need to do is, I think everyone in life, not just law enforcement officers, we need to know that what we do is important and what we do is appreciated. And you know, so that that kind of a, addresses the you know, sort of morale of law enforcement officers, but it also applies to the communities as well. Yeah, they need to know that what they do is important, and that they're appreciated. Uh, so that interaction after those calls are spot on. And you're right, Jason has a, a a powerful program that that more and more communities should should embrace because really it is, you know, it's a, it's a force multiplier. Right, uh, we grow law enforcement when we work together. If you look at the cities who who have really uh, a good cohesive group in a criminal justice system where every spoke of that wheel is doing their part, uh, then the community feels valued and, and crime is low. The the city, the places where we have one spoke a little a little bent, a little bit off, then it it, it has a, a profound impact. Uh, I'd also like to you know just agree with you that. Uh, Poll after poll after poll shows that the vast majority of Americans appreciate and support law enforcement. Uh, as much as 84% recognize that, uh, that the whole defunding de- movement, uh, that ship has sailed, that, uh, that it's ridiculous, that it, it made no sense whatsoever. And in reality, what it did, that experiment, uh, that failed experiment, has caused our communities to be less and less safe and our jobs less a- a safe. And statistics prove that. You're right. Yep. Numbers are impersonal. They don't care whether you like them or not. They're going to tell you the truth. So data tells the data is what our organization, what, what our profession is driven by. And uh, it supports everything that you just said. You're spot on. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, so we talk about that interaction. We talk about techniques that can be trained to, you know, training officers The the, the, the modern officer today uh, is dealing with a lot more than they've ever done before. I, I did this job for 36 years. Uh, you yourself have a, a long career uh, in law enforcement and you've seen a lot in the evolution during that period of time. Um, but law enforcement today is a different, it's a different animal. Oh yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a different, uh, different, uh, approach. Uh, our very existence as law enforcement officers is directly related to the trust of our community. And if we've learned anything in the last two years, uh, we've learned that we have some work to do in a lot of cities, right? Let's talk a little bit about the evolution of training on, on, on how, you know, your approach to, to, to having, uh, our, our officers, The training necessary in order to be able to have that interaction and have positive outcomes with the general public. Because the reality is, is most of the people we're dealing with, we're catching them on that worst day. Yeah. Uh, They're dealing with some type of trauma. They need to feel like they're valued. They need need to feel like it's important, uh, that they're important. And uh, it's a mindset. And it's the things that we do in, in doing our job can go a long ways in building that public trust especially in the communities that are struggling the most yeah talk and, a little bit about some of those techniques yeah
1: and so and I, just to kind of piggyback on something you say really it's about building relationships and um and when i say the right people have to engage the right people um no offense to any chiefs or sheriffs or anything like that out there um but the chief or sheriff showing up to a community meeting to talk to the community and then you know 10 minutes and leaving, um, that's that's not how we build relationships with those, the people in those communities, right? Uh, also, uh, from the civilian side, or the, the, the public side of things, um, just because the, somebody happens to be a pastor doesn't mean that they speak for that community. I think the relationships are built primarily with patrol officers or community service officers and one-on-one interactions and relationships. Um, you know, when I was patrolling in Hampton, Virginia, I found the most influential person in the entire neighborhood to be Grandma right? Uh, She was more influential than uh, anybody else. And so I think that's where we have to be building relationships, be intentional about building relationships with people. Um, And honestly, some of it requires us to do some things different, uh, but the public as well. But what can we do differently? I think we start spending some time uh, in th- in areas where we're uncomfortable, meaning uh, maybe it is, um, you know, off duty, occasionally going to a baseball game or a football game or a fair or something that happens in our district, just so that we're seen there. And, and I think that helps build relationships. So I think that's kind of the, the key uh, thing that we need to be thinking about. And obviously, um, that, that works both ways. Right. Um, and I will tell you, uh, it, it makes the difference. You you pointed out some of our cities after uh, the George Floyd and some other incidents, they descend into absolute chaos, rioting and and lo- I mean, just absolute terrible things. Right. Absolutely. But I'll just give you a quick example. I live here in Brunswick, Georgia, and even though it wasn't a police issue, it was a major national issue uh, when we was the uh, the killing of Ahmaud Aubrey now made national news and quite honestly because uh that incident involved a former law enforcement officer you know how that goes right if it's a former then automatically it's a law enforcement issue right they they make that connection right away now we had two different trials here right in brunswick georgia literally two blocks away from where i'm coming to you from right now our office in downtown brunswick and here's why i bring this up is that um the, our local civic groups, our NAACP, the, our local law enforcement, they had such a strong relationship that we had no problems. I mean, we had no, uh, well, there was no riots. There was no, I'm not even sure that there were any arrests. All the, all the uh, demonstrations were 100% peaceful. To me, that can only occur because of relationships that had been built well before the trial started.
0: Well in advance. Yeah, I have an old, I have a say, I live in South Louisiana, so uh, those people who are in the South can appreciate this uh, analogy that I use, but I've always said that it's uh, it's difficult to build excitement out of building levees when the sun's out, <laughs> you know, and levees keep water out of our houses. And, and you know, the, the analogy is, is that, you know, it's difficult to, to keep this, this relationship and build these relationships because that's really when you need to do your work. When, you know, when the storms do come, you need to have that protection in place and you can't build a levee when the storm's Right. Out. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, a, a, you know, maybe an analogy that only applies to a handful of people that are actually watching this, but there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, you can't put a roof on your house the day it's raining. Right. You need to do it in advance in anticipation of those days, those relationships that you build. I've always said, you know, and, and I say it quite often, you know, it's not, it doesn't matter what profession you're in. You can be a doctor, you can be a painter, you can be a printer, you can, you can be anything. Uh, at the end of the day, it's not so much the product and the services that we provide. Uh, it really is a relationship we build absolutely around, uh, that that get us that get us long run because we're never especially in, in policing we're never going to always get it on a market mm-hmm. yeah it's just there's too it's too fluid there's there's you know there's too many too many as a human element involved and because it's a human element you're always going to have those it really is all about those relationships so I, I appreciate the your comment on that and it's uh, I couldn't couldn't be more agreeable in the fact that uh, you know again it goes back to how I started this right. People want to know, they want to feel valued, and they want to feel like what they're doing is important. Yeah.
1: So let me uh, answer your question about, you know, what are some things that we teach or how do we go about it? We do a program called uh, Dynamics of Officer-Citizen Encounters. And I'll tell you just a little bit about where it came from. Um, My goal when we developed that program about five years ago was to figure out, okay, how can I increase officer safety, while simultaneously increasing the quality of contacts that we have with the public. And now there'll there'll be a lot of argument there, right? Hey, if I'm going to be super safe, it's going to have to come at the detriment of my interaction with people, or I can interact with people in a really high level, officer friendly, but I have to give up some of my officer safety. And our premise is that It's not a either or that we can actually do both. And so we started thinking about um, (laughs) what gets us in trouble, both safety wise and then with the public. And we came up with an acronym. And this is actually how we teach the program. Uh, The acronym is CLEAR. C L E AR. And we believe if the officers do those five things in most circumstances, I'm I'm, I'm careful about this, right? Because I know the cynics out there. I'm not talking about when somebody rolls out of a car and starts shooting at us. I'm talking on domestics, average citizen contact. If we do these five things in the think clear approach, I think we'll have better quality contacts and we'll be safer. So what is C? So C is communication. (laughs) I don't think there's any argument there that sometimes things go south because uh, law enforcement officers, uh, sometimes we don't communicate as well as we should. So I, I don't think that's a huge stretch to say if we want to be safer and better quality contacts, um, we have to make sure that we can communicate well. L is legal authority. Uh, and I kind of chuckle when I do talk about this in class because, um, we know across, I mean, oftentimes sometimes we get in ourselves in trouble and I ask, I ask classes all the time, how many of us have ever arrested somebody for disorderly conduct in our careers? Of course, every single hand in the room goes up. And then I ask the next question, like how many of us have ever gone to court and testified and gotten a conviction on it? And, you know, fewer hands are up at the end of that question. And then part of that comes to, sometimes when it comes to legal authority, we get frustrated uh, because we can't get what we want. And so our default tends to be, okay, we'll arrest them for disorderly conduct. Now I kind of make a joke about it, but the reality is, is when we interact with people, we have got to know more about the law than the people we're interacting with. Um, and so, for example, some people that kind of cause us a little bit of challenge can be um, not that it, if you're, a, if someone is a First Amendment auditor, then uh, they have the absolute constitutional right to engage in that. Uh, there's not a problem. Um, but you have to know what the law is around that. If I'm an officer and I'm encountering a First Amendment auditor, I need to know exactly what their constitutional rights are. But I also have to know what, uh, crosses a line between constitutionally permitted behavior and interference, for for example. So I think one of the things we can do from a legal authority is we just have to be absolute cut and dry, uh, black and white, on what the law is. Um, it gives us more confidence, and then it ensures that we're only enforcing laws that we have uh, probable cause to arrest for. So I think that's important as well. Um it, same with sovereign citizens and some of these other challenging contacts. Uh, we just need to know what our lawful authority is. So we have communication, we have legal authority. E, is emotional intelligence. Um, and that is nothing more, nothing less. Uh, every human being, this is not a cop thing. Every human being has emotional, like things that'll push your buttons that we just all have. Uh, it might be that our kid won't make their bed or whatever. All human beings have emotional triggers, things that get under our skin that for lack of it, they just things that piss us off. Uh, In law enforcement world, we have those too that are unique to the job. So part of being good emotional intelligence is simply knowing what those triggers are, understanding that some people out here are going to intentionally push those buttons and that we have a mechanism for dealing with that. So we're aware of what they are. And then we have some self-management strategies. The last two parts I think clear A is adaptive decision-making. This is really where I get into more of the tactical aspects of things. So um, how do I create discretionary time during contacts? How do I um, stay left of bang? Uh, Be quick, but don't hurry. Um, How do I make sure that I have the equipment that I need? Uh, Do I have multiple tourniquets on my person? Have I, you know, things like that. So all of that goes into tactics and how do I approach vehicles and things like that. And then last part. So we've got communication. We have legal authority. Emotional intelligence simply means keeping our emotions in check. Adaptive decision-making is all the tactics and tactical uh, things that we use during encounters. And lastly, we say R is respect unconditionally. Now, when I say that, people get, oh, here we go. This is that kumbaya. You know, know, everybody deserves a hug. And, And I don't mean it like that at all. What I mean by that is I'll argue all day that respect is an officer safety issue. And the people who really know this are people that work in our correctional environment. And the reason I say that respect is an officer safety issue is because if we disrespect people, I might not ever personally pay the price for that. But if I disrespect people in the public and start to jade them, The next officer comes in contact with them could be in danger from a person that I disrespected. So we simply call it think clear. Uh, It's an acronym for communication, legal authority, emotional intelligence, adaptive decision making, respect unconditionally. And again, if we do those five things in most encounters, um, I think we're safer and we have better quality contacts.
0: You know, John, I, I I love it. Uh, you know, clear. I th- I, th- I think it illustrates something else as well. Um, I, I, I'll i tell you just a short story. Just last night, there were three of us, uh, three of our national board members were sitting at dinner and, you know, three, here's three cops, you know, do what, th- what three cops do. They they start reminiscing about, you know, this, their days in law enforcement. And I made a comment uh, and I think it kind of hits home here because I think it's important to say, I made a comment that uh, one of my first days on a job, I, I remember, uh, you know, just a guy I knew for years, uh, kind of pulled me aside. He said, you know, Pat, just, uh, you, you know, you need to get another job. This, this job has changed. And this is 40 years ago. Hmm. Uh, you need, you, you really ought to look at something else. This job just isn't the same. It's just not the same anymore. And so, you know, maybe you need to do something else. And i and, and i say that only because, um, you know, 40 years ago that we did way, we did policing needed to change. And right. here we are 40 years from that day. And I could easily say, you know, policing is just not the same. It's not the same. But the reality is, is it shouldn't be. It's, it's constantly evolving. So, so the, the, you know, clear the, uh, you know, the, 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 the training that you just discussed, the, uh, the mindset of dealing with calls, uh, and dealing with the public. Well, that just shows the evolution of law enforcement where we need to be. Yeah. So, yeah. I just, uh, I just felt, felt like I, I needed to, to point that out because I think, uh, I think the reason why law enforcement changed again is because public's changed. World right. changed, and because of that, we need to we need to evolve with it. And uh, right. you know, one thing, you know, two things that cops hate the most: uh, <laughs> they hold status, they hate status quo, and they hate change. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so, so somewhere in between, we got to figure out a way to 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 you know. I think most are getting it. They get it. They know that our evolution of our profession is is vital to our existence, and there are some that we need to pull into it. But whatever it is, we're all going to take this journey together. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And so so, so right. I love that. You know, I don't want to shift gears a little bit. We'll come back to to some of the law enforcement challenges, but I, I want to I want to take this in a little bit different. And 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 I feel that training is a part of it. I, I you know I look at my evolution in law enforcement, uh, the time that I've been here, and I look at. Uh, at just the, the damage done to law enforcement officers, you know, let, let me tell you my observation. My observation is this: that if one thing every law enforcement officer in this country has in common is that we all took this job. We all had psyche evaluations. We had physical evaluations. We, you know, we had all of these things necessary to show that we had the uh, the, the, the I guess the, the the right person for a job, right? And and it doesn't take very long that we're on this job, and we start seeing uh, law enforcement officers that are struggling. People struggle in a whole lot of different ways. You know, it could be acting out. It could be a number of things. And never once do we ever look and consider the fact that law enforcement officers, because of the demands that are placed on them, are being damaged because of the very job they had. I, I had a guy say something to me the other day, and I thought it was so profound. It, it really is. It just, I want you to wrap your head around this. It is difficult to defend humanity without losing a little bit of your own. And I think that is, <laughs> wow. that is a profound Wow, statement. what a... And in, in reality, we, we can't do the things that we do and be exposed to things that we do and expect them to not have an impact on on us physically. Now, so when we, we see damage to officers, we say, you know, that's a bad officer. That officer's got problems. That officer's got, you know, uh, we have a moral and fiduciary responsibility to fix what, you, what is broken. Yeah. You know, so I've been pushing this for quite some time. You know, the Fraternal Water Police, we have our wellness division is something. And and I love the fact that the public has become more and more is becoming more mainstream. We're talking about those issues. I personally, and I'm sure you could say the same thing. I personally know at least a half a dozen, my friends, uh, people that I know, some close, some closer than others who have committed suicide. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, The average person will, will have a traumatic event in their life, maybe one or two. Uh, and we know that it affects them, but somehow law enforcement officers may get may get 80, 100 of those over the course of their career. Mm-hmm. We need to have more discussion about the damage that's being done to law enforcement officers. And, and I, I think I could think of no better place to start. I would rather um, let's have those meaningful discussions on PTSD and the effects that it's having on law enforcement officers. Now, yeah. in our academies, in our, in our training, long before we're looking at people that are broken. And maybe yeah. too much to be able to fix. To yeah, absolutely. So in a training standpoint, let's, let's talk about the evolution of, of being open about, uh, about these challenges that we have. And more importantly, what we've seen in, in the way training has changed and hopefully where we see it going, because I don't think it's gone enough to be able to fix these things long before they ever happen.
1: Yeah. So a couple of things here. So, um, your, your point, uh, is well taken about the trauma, how, how much trauma, and again, it, it's, we're, let's be honest, it's not just police officers, right? Firefighters, EMTs, and things like that. And you mentioned 80 to 100. I, I saw a statistic recently that was very close to that. Um, one of the things I think we've got to um, actually focus on is understanding that when we say uh, officers are exposed to trauma, oftentimes we're thinking of the, for lack of the big ones, meaning um, a, a child that has died or, um, you know, a, a bad car accident or, um, you know, God forbid, officer involved shooting or so, so uh, work in a homicide scene and things like that, responding to uh, a suicide. So those are certainly traumas. But I think what happens is that we forget that we're exposed to other types of traumas as well. When you go and you are uh, are trying to intervene in a knockdown, dragout domestic fight, I think most officers don't consider that "quote unquote" trauma, but it is right. So it's not just the big ones. It's it's the other things that we deal with, right? Uh, the child neglect. It's a so it's not. So I think part of it is is that. The number that we use, hey, you know, an officer may uh, be exposed to 80 traumatic events in a career. um, It's probably way, way more than that. So, first of all, I think that's part of it. Right. Um, I think when we talk about training, there's a couple things that we teach and talk about. Um, Number one, I think that. when we're talking about just a practical application, we need to expose officers in training to as many potential um, types of scenarios as possible. So, so obviously, scenario-based, reality-based training scenarios, whether it's handling domestics, uh, officer, you know, shoot/no shoot, or whatever we're call, you know, you want to call them. I, I prefer to call it use of force decision-making uh, scenarios. Um, so it starts with training. Um, we have to get officers more exposed to that because, um, in and again, I'm very cautious with the term stress inoculation training um, because that's been twisted in the training profession as stress them out training. And that's not the idea. It's not to overwhelm them with stress. It's to provide stressors in a training environment. So that they learn to deal with those things uh, and they become inoculated to that. That's the idea. There's a huge misconception from a trainer's perspective about what we mean. So stress inoculation training, getting them in an environment where they're seeing some of these traumatic things and they're better able to ca- uh, deal with it. Uh, certainly there's a direct correlation between wellness uh, and the way we deal with stressors when it comes to how we eat, how we uh, whether we exercise or not, And then sleep um sleep is the dirty little secret in law enforcement and i and i i get beat up over this all the time constantly uh i ask people uh how many people i say uh, i ask a class how many of you work 12-hour shifts nowadays it's about three quarters of the uh, room raise their hands and i said you're all lying and they kind of look at me strange i'm like not one of you works a 12-hour shift i said you are all working minimum 13, 14-hour shifts, right? You're getting there early. You're finishing paperwork. And so sleep deprivation is a real issue when it comes to it. So now we're exposed to trauma. We're not eating properly. We don't exercise. And then uh, we've got sleep debt piling up on us as well. So I love that we are finally starting to take the approach to some of this and saying, hey, exercise, um, you know, eat how we eat, making sure we get enough sleep, make sure that we're getting time off those types of things and exposing ourselves to low level trauma in training environments. So we can better deal with it. That's all part of things that have to be trained. Um, so that's where I would address it from a training perspective. Um, the other thing is, is that uh, I think mentoring programs, very few agencies have really good mentoring programs, meaning uh, we tend to just default when I'm a young officer, I just go to a veteran officer and we both know that can be good or bad, right? If I've got a disgruntled uh, veteran officer who hasn't dealt with their own trauma, that could be a nightmare, right? Um, so I think formal mentoring programs where, where we, um, and not I'm not talking about peer support, that's another issue. I'm glad we have that available. but but I think formal mentoring programs can be really effective in helping us deal with stress um, if we've got the right people that are uh, mentoring. So those are a couple of things that come to mind, the things that we talk about in our training classes.
0: You know, it's, uh, it goes back to how I started this. Everybody needs to feel like what they're doing is important and they feel valued. And those mentoring programs do just that. They help reinforce the positives of what we're doing. So,
1: Yeah. Can I throw something in here, too? Um, so, I, 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 listen. I love that, you know, we all know, right? 10 years ago, I mean, probably even less than that. I mean, especially when we came, I came in 94, right? We knew the, the way we dealt with trauma, right? Uh, a senior officer, probably our FTO supervisor, we probably heard it from 10 different people. We'd see something terrible and we'd, it was the whole suck it up buttercup. It's just a job. Don't let it get to you. You know, yeah, we were so I love the fact that we're, we're changing now, right? So that, that there's no discussion about that. Officer wellness, officer resiliency, those are hot topics. Everybody's starting to do it. Um, I'd love to see a survey of how many agencies, and maybe the FOP has this data, how many are actually implementing wellness programs. So I'm, I love that. We're finally getting it, right? But I have a, a problem, and I, ca- I keep calling it the missing link. <laughs> One of the major police stressors that study after study after study tells us when you talk to police officers, oftentimes it's not the stress they, fe- they face out on the street, but it's the internal organizational stressors, the toxic culture and things like that, that are one of the primary stressors that we have. So you can have all the wellness programs in the world. You can have a CrossFit gym and you can have uh, meal planning and you can do all that kind of stuff. And, and you can have SISM and peer support, which we should have. But man, if we don't address the culture then isn't all that mitigated right i mean i mean if we still have people sh- if we still have toxic leaders toxic bosses we still have internal stressors well then man we're really we can't we can't call ourselves a healthy organization just because we have a bunch of programs and and that bothers me too right um, when we some agencies tout their wellness and resiliency because they have a bunch of programs Well, it doesn't tell me whether your officers are well or resilient. It tells me you have a bunch of programs. I need to know, are they engaging in them? How are they participating? Uh, What is the culture around that? Do people feel free to participate in that? So I think there's a missing link here that's not getting talked about when we talk about officer safety and wellness. And that's the actual culture of the organization needs to be addressed.
0: I want to to talk about that culture just a little bit and carry that a little further. You know, I think, uh, you know, really it is, it's all, it's all in a way that you present. A culture, culture is, is you know, it's, it starts at the top. Everyone feels connected because, you know, if you have a good culture, everyone feels that, uh, again, it goes back to feeling valued and feeling important. Uh, what we're doing is important. And it really is the way to do it. You know, the, the dynamic, the, the dynamic you've just described is, uh, you know, I often you, say, you tell people, see, here's the thing, you know, a law enforcement officer shows up on a scene. And they are going to make a decision with whatever resources they have available to them. They are going to take control because not taking control can cause harm to themselves and to others. So that is our mindset. We're taught that first day in academy, and we we continue to you know through our entire career of asserting that authority or asserting that uh, that that you know position that we are going to take control of the situation so that we can kind of maintain it and kind of guide it in in the right direction towards a peaceful resolution. Uh, and those same people that may do this call after call after call after call will show up back at the station and reach into the pigeonhole and pull out a memo of something that makes no sense to them because right. it's change, but it's not changed with an explanation explanation that takes you to, to some understanding of what the overall picture is. That, that's right. culture. Yeah, that's that's understanding Uh, rather than, you know, you talk about the traumas to law enforcement and recognize that a big part of that is uh, the way that agencies are run. Well, that's it. That's it. It it is. You know, people need to understand. They need to know that what they're doing is important and how they fit into part of it. Uh, Very, very good uh, assessment. Just, you know, we'll we'll move on to another topic. But before we do, I want you to look into your crystal ball. Uh, You've been training for a long time. And where do you see wellness training going? in the future, where would you like to see it going, uh, in the future? And, 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 you know, again, I am going back to where I was at. I don't, I don't want to lose another officer. I don't want to lose another friend and people you know, they, they, they struggle in silent. Don't they didn't even see it coming. Uh, that, that starts early on in in a, in, a, in an officer's career when they're healthy to help them, to help them deal with these healthy, um, you know, uh, avenues in order to be able to deal with the struggles that they, that they have that most people don't see.
1: Yeah. So a part of it is, I think you mentioned it earlier, right? Um, is establishing, uh, there's a great book called Atomic Habits and what they talk, and, and so I think part of that is we establish it at the academy, right? Financial wellness, physical wellness, mental wellness, and then, um, so I think that has to start at the academy, and we need to, um, I, I, you know, I don't know if we'll ever get to the point we can mandate physical fitness, um, but, you know, that, obviously that's a part of it, right? Um, so I think that um, I mentioned earlier, uh, we need to, do, I, I'll give you a good example, Um College Station, Texas, it's just, Happens to be a police department we do a lot of work with, but when I walk in their building, I just feel different um, because of the culture there. Uh, so they've got basically a CrossFit gym. So there's that. Um, their break areas. Uh, you got officers in there doing meal prep, and so wellness and resiliency aren't programs there. It's a it's a way. It's just the way they do things there. Um, and it goes it goes back to culture, right? Um, part of this is uh, some of our more veteran officers, and I'm not going to stereotype them and, and put them. I'm not going to put them all in one group, but we know that. I think it's time for some of our stereotype, some of our veteran officers to embrace this. And what I mean by that is, um, you know how it is. We come out of FTO, we start looking around at these senior officers, and we want to be just like them. We need more examples of those officers that are, um, they're not working themselves to death with overtime. They eat right, they meal plan, they do those things. Um, And some of those more senior officers they have an obligation to leave the organization in a better place. I'm a big person. I, I'm very big on legacy, um, not, not popularity, but legacy and how do we leave the organization. So I think our senior officers can play a critical role. And some of that is a shift from the old, hey, suck it up, buttercup, to really being uh, hyper, you know, not hyper, but very vigilant about interacting with young people, checking out them, how are they doing, things like that. And again, I know it sounds soft, it sounds like kumaya, but the reality is, do we want well officers or not? Um, because that's what it takes, right? Um, and then again, on the culture side of things, uh, I we've been working on something, we, we think that organizational culture, because uh, we talk about that word, and then it doesn't get defined, and so for us there are, it's something we've been doing across the country. Um, we believe that culture and organizational culture can be uh, there's three keys: one is we believe in investing in leadership training at all levels, meaning non-supervisory patrol officers including records non-supervisors and non-sworn people we want to invest in leadership training at all levels that's part of starting a uh, a healthy culture Um, most leadership dollars are disproportionately uh, spent at the upper ends of the organization we should be switching that and spending money across the board and when i say leadership training i'm not talking about first line supervisor school uh or you know, new captain school, nothing wrong with those, but they're tend to be very light on leadership and heavy on management, how to manage sick leave and, and policy and procedure. So we believe in leadership at all levels. The next thing is that we believe that in, a culture actually has to be intentionally designed. Uh, we follow a process uh, that we, we borrow from a company in New Jersey, it's called culture by design, and we help organizations. And what's really cool is when we go in, we have the chief literally sitting at the same table as a police cadet uh, and patrol and everybody in between and, and about groups seven to ten. And we actually go through what we call a fundamental behavior selection process. And it helps describe the way or the fundamental behaviors of everybody in the organization. So now we operate differently. We talk differently. Um, and then lastly, I think you create, you create great culture through um, succession planning for talent, not title. Seems like all succession planning in most organizations are all about who's going to get the next position, right? Who's going to make captain? Who's going to make major? Who's going to be the next chief? Um, some of us don't want to do that. Some of us want to be patrol officers. So they need training as well, um, often referred to as upskilling. How can I invest in people um, and get them in the career path that they are going to be successful at? That starts reducing those overall stressors. And now I have a wellness program combined with a better culture I'm going to have a more healthy officer, if if that makes sense.
0: I love a lot of the analogies that you have, and just the uh, the, the thought that goes into the culture of agencies and building, uh, building that next generation of law enforcement and empowering them right. uh, at all levels. Recognizing that career paths are are different, uh, and, uh, and and empowering them with the same skill sets as everyone you know across the across the entire system. So, uh, but what I want to do now is I want to take us back just a little bit and, into law enforcement if you look at uh, most of the funding that's coming out of law enforcement, there's a lot of cry across, you know, in every state, at every state legislature, even in federal government, when it comes to uh, some of the funding for law enforcement programs, they all have a buzzword now. And that buzzword is, is de-escalation. Yeah. De-escalation training. Now, uh, you know, my years of law enforcement, we had de-escalation training. We just called it different things. Yeah. But like anything, it had to evolve too. And you talk a a little bit, just just share just in in a training a standpoint, kind of the evolution of de-escalation training, and how what it has turned in today, and how it is important for agencies to to embrace.
1: Yeah, so that's first of all. I think uh, one of my frustrations when it comes to the topic of de-escalation is that there's it's so ill-defined by a lot of places, and um, and there seems to be a public misunderstanding about it. So um, I wrote an article. Well, um, it might have been 2021, but I wrote an article called "The Truths of De-escalation." I and I think, um, especially with the public, um, we can't have a, we cannot have an honest conversation with the public unless uh, they can understand these three things to be true. Um, number one is is that de-escalation is an outcome. It's a result, meaning it is not a specific tool or tactic. And, and there seems to be a fundamental misunderstanding about that. That is some Like when we go into a situation that um, it's something that we can uh, – it's a special tool that we use. It's not. It's a wide range of integrated strategies and tactics um, designed to um, help the person de-escalate themselves. Um, the other thing too, one of the big points that I always make, especially when I'm talking to non-law enforcement people, um, I want them to understand that de-escalation is simply not, it can't be just the absence of force. Uh, the truth is sometimes application of reasonable force is the only way to quote unquote de-escalate a situation. If I have an active shooter in a school who is, uh, taking people's lives, the only way to de-escalate that situation is through the, re- the use of objectively reasonable force. So um, I wish more people understood that. So, so for us, it's not a special tool or tactic. Um, it is an outcome. It's a result of us doing something. Uh, now in best case scenario, there's no force use, but that can't be the end goal. Uh, so number two, it's not a verb. It's not something I do to somebody, unless, of course, I'm using force. Um, but it gets misused all the time. We hear people in the public. We hear the media, even law enforcement leaders. Uh, the question, why didn't they de-escalate them as if it's a verb, as if it's something we do to people? Um, all we can really do in most circumstances with people in crisis is create an opportunity, create an environment, time, uh, timing, tools, tactics, space, whatever it might be, just... We refer to it as a dis- discretionary time. Um, I can attempt to create discretionary time to allow that person to um, de-escalate themselves. Uh, I can't make them do that. So um, so that's for us, that's important. And the reality is, is that the, the sad reality is de-escalation can't be guaranteed. It's just, it can't. Uh, it's unrealistic to think that all, we we have so many examples of officers um, actually going overboard, putting themselves in bad unsafe tactical positions in some sometimes misguided attempt to de-escalate where they get themselves hurt. And the reality is there are times when we can do everything right and somebody still ends up getting hurt. Um, So I think we have to, when we're talking about de-escalation training, uh, I think my argument to trainers and agencies across the country are buyer, buyer beware, meaning Know what the, know what's being taught in these classes. Um, some organizations, they got a nice stamp of approval from another organization. But when you dig into it, um, some of this training out there is just unrealistic. It doesn't comport with the way officers have to engage people, meaning, um, the end goal. Hey, we're going to teach you how to avoid using force at all costs. That's a, that's just a miss. That's, that, that's a dangerous proposition. Um, Of course, we don't want to use force, but we can't have a mindset of avoiding force at all costs. And so when it comes to de-escalation training, you you really have to make sure that what's being taught is realistic. Uh so that's kind of our approach. We call it our three truths of de-escalation. Um and it's it's kind of in, in, along with some of our tools and tactics. Um one of my favorite comments when we teach our de-escalation class is uh at the end of the day people write in their evaluation, "Hey, this is not what I thought it was going to be." Which is great. That's actually what we want to hear because um they they tell us, "Hey, this is really what we're facing in the, on the street. This is what you talked about today is real." So, um, I think that's the most important thing when it comes to de-escalation.
0: You know, de-escalation really is uh, just a reasonable and uh, the reasonable management of barriers that stop or that p- would prevent the de-escalation of an event.
1: And, and Absolutely, understanding,
0: understanding those dynamics and not being part of of a you know truly understanding and breaking it down and and uh, putting it in a, in a way that allows a path for de-escalation. So, right. Uh, non- Thank you. Uh, some really great information you share with us. I appreciate uh, uh, all of the effort that you do in 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 helping educate and uh, and train uh, the next wave of law enforcement in this country. As uh, you know, as we we talked about it in a number of different aspects today, law enforcement exists because of the support we have in our community. The, the world's changing, and so must law enforcement. And these these new techniques are important for the for modern law enforcement. And I appreciate all that you do with it. So let, let's and, go ahead and wrap this up. If you could, uh, I'll give you a chance to have some some final thoughts. And then I'm gonna, you know, ask you to tell us a little bit about how if someone wants to know more about the services that you provide, how can they how can they get in touch with you, and, and how can they uh, learn more about uh, about your services.
1: Sure. So, um, our, our mission statement at command presence training is very simple. Uh, we educate and empower people everywhere so they can serve the public. That's what we exist to do. Our job is to empower and educate, uh, public safety officers across the United States. Um, we, uh, we do that through uh, leadership training officer safety training, and instructor development training. And we deliver it literally from Miami Police Department to Fairbanks, Alaska. So we travel the entire United States. Um, but we're driven with that idea. How do we empower and educate people everywhere uh, so that they can serve the public? And people can find out more about us by just simply visiting uh, www.commandpresence.com. Dot net dot n-e-t. I wish it was uh we we the other domain name was taken, so we ended up with dot net. Um or uh you can email me at J which is B O S T A. I-N, jbostain at commandpresence.net. We'd love to talk about um, uh, what we're doing uh, as far as building culture. We actually have a, a summit. We call it the Converge Leadership and Culture Summit where we do the things I mentioned earlier. Uh, we provide leadership training at all levels and we help organizations design their culture and we've had great success. So we're doing a lot of fun stuff. I have an incredible cadre of people. I'm truly honored and blessed to uh, to have the people that we have. So I'm um, here. I'm um, here welcome to answer any questions. And we look forward to the opportunities to work with anybody who is wanting to simply uh, get better at what they're doing.
0: Great. And John, thanks again for, for joining us. And to our viewers and our listeners, thank you for tuning in to The Blue View, where we talk about the issues that are so vitally important to the men and women who suit up and show up in communities across this country every single day. Thank you.
1: Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else to get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.